0: Good morning, New Life Church. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am really excited about this psalm this morning. Um, do you have something that you anticipate that fills you with excitement? You're planning for it. You have been waiting for it. Maybe it's a vacation or a trip or it's a game to watch or a championship team to root for, a connection with a friend or a really good meal. And have any of those things a week after their arrival exceeded your anticipation of them? I remember as a kid turning myself in knots of excitement about a coming trip that was months away or a visit to a theme park, and then you experience the thing and you realize your imagination is bigger than reality. Now, if you're like me, A lot of adulthood is spent working on appropriately setting expectations. This is going to be this good. Not this good, but this good. You set the expectations of rest on a vacation, and if you do it at the wrong spot, you come away disappointed. The memory of the steak is never as good as the sizzle before the first bite. Right? This morning... I want to tell you about something you can anticipate that is bigger than your imagination. In fact, your imagination needs to be renewed for you to even begin to anticipate this as it should be anticipated. If you begin to catch the idea of this coming day, of this event, you will know it will not disappoint. It will not diminish, and the only appropriate thing to do in the waiting is to proclaim the glory of the coming just King. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 96, and while you are turning there, a good question to ask is: where did this song come from? Who wrote it? Why was it written? When was it sung? And maybe as Lindsay read the psalm, you thought, Oh, I've in my Bible time, I've read this before. I know, I know where this is. Or, if you are like me, there was a little footnote in your Bible, and it's pointed you to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. And you would see, whoa, this song in Psalm 96 is right there in the middle of this story in 1 Chronicles. The whole thing is in verses 23 through 34 there. People knew to put that footnote because they've read their Bibles a lot and they recognize connections and they see things. And I want you to be encouraged by that. Much of scholarly work is familiarity. It doesn't take a genius mind to be able to read and interpret the Bible. Most of all, it just takes time. You keep reading. Give it time, and you will see that this entire book is connected. And we're going to see some of those connections this morning. So this Psalm 96 is actually sitting smack in the middle of 1 Chronicles 16, and the story told there is the narrative of the return of the Ark of God. Maybe you guys have seen Indiana Jones, the first one. You know what the Ark of God is, the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe not. The ark of the covenant usually sat either in the tabernacle, which was a special tent meeting place, or in the temple. Both of these places are where God would be present with his people Israel, where they would worship him and he would make himself known. And in prior to chapter 16 in 1st Chronicles, the ark had been taken captive. Someone stole it. There had been an ongoing war with the Philistines and it was captured by the Philistines and it had been recently regained. And finally, in this story, the ark is being brought back to be amid the people. And chapter 16 is the story of the excitement and the praising and the offerings and the singing of King David and the people of God when they bring it back. Can you put yourself in that type of position? The thing that represented God's closeness to you, his people, had been captured by the enemy. That's a crisis and it had been away from God's people, and now it is finally going to be where it belongs, in the midst of God's people, to Jerusalem, where the king sits. Picture the greatest excitement. The ark that represented the presence of God in their midst had finally returned, emotionally, physically, corporately. This is bigger than a city winning a Super Bowl. This is bigger than Argentina celebrating the World Cup. (laughs) The manifestation of God with us is here again. Yes! The God who made us a people and has proven himself to be our protector and provider, the manifestation of his presence is with us again. This would be like the biggest, most exciting church service ever. And as they walked the ark to Jerusalem, they gave offerings To God, they gave animals, they cooked meals, they sang songs. This is essentially a large parade, party, worship service all the way to Jerusalem. That's what's going on. And they as a people were on the same page. We need to sing. We need to praise. We need to give our offerings because we are pumped. And that is exactly what David, King David, leads If you were there in 1 Chronicles 16, don't turn there. I'll tell you what it says. In verse 7, it says, Then on that day, David first appointed that thanksgiving be sung to the Lord by Asaph and his brothers. He points to Asaph and his brothers and says, You are the music leaders now. And they sang songs that day. And many of those songs listed in 1 Chronicles 16 will be the songs that we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks. Including today in Psalm 96. The song begins in verse one. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous work among all the peoples. This is similar to last week, right? In Psalm 95. The commands are clear. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, tell of his salvation, declare his glory. And there are a few new bits here as well. Sing to the Lord a new song. God is worth more than a few songs. God's glory is infinite, so our singing of new songs will not exceed his goodness. He's never going to go, I think you've overdone it. God's works, his good and gracious works continue to abound, so we need songs to sing in response to them. That is why the church is always abounding in new songs. In the immediate context of the appointment of this song, Psalm 96, the ark was back, right? The felt presence of God among the people had returned. Let's write a new song and sing it. Psalm 96, perfect. And the first line of this song is an admission that God is good and we have seen it, so we need to respond, let's sing. And God's presence and power is not experienced by only a limited amount of people. That's the next bit of this song. The call here is for all the earth to sing. Again, we're not talking about a regional God. We're talking about the Lord. And remember, whenever you see all caps in your Bible, L-O-R-D, Lord, that is always a marker that the Hebrew word Yahweh is being translated. Yahweh is the name of the creator God, the covenant-making God, and singing of him should not be limited to a region or a country or a nation or people. It is for all the earth. That is why it is so thrilling for me, maybe for you, when we have a combined service like we were just a couple weeks ago across the street, and we can sing the same song together in multiple languages. When we hear God's word spoken by speakers of different languages, because that is a glimpse of what this command fully realized will be. Proper, full worship, not limited to a people group. The symphony in response to God's glory will be all peoples, in all voices, in all tongues. And the song is calling it forth, let's go. Let's sing that way all the earth. Sing to the Lord, it says, bless his name. In what way tell of his salvation from day to day? God is creator God, yes. God is people making covenant promising God, yes. God is also a saving God. God is a rescuing God. And his salvation is so great that we should sing this day to day. Some victories, some savings deserve some praise. We can have a celebration, we can have a parade, and then the excitement will die down, but that will have been sufficient. The celebration of a victory dies down. The excitement of wedding days subside. The joy of a physical rescue or the return of someone lost dies down. But day to day we must tell the salvation of the Lord. If you think, it's silly, it's silly to talk about the salvation of the Lord that much then you do not understand the magnitude of the salvation of the Lord. God's salvation, his ability and willingness to save is not limited, it is not narrow. His rescue is comprehensive. His saving of you is not limited to your past, but includes your present and encompasses your future. Even if we're just talking about you, that's a big deal, right? God saves you from sin. God saves us from sin, not just our small sin, but our large sin. Not just your known sin, but your secret sin. Even the punishment for things you should have done but failed to do. God's salvation is not limited to your sin either, but others' sin and their effects on you. That's what they were singing about. The Philistines took the ark. God saved them from the ramifications of someone else. We talk of God saving us from guilt and also cleansing us of shame. His salvation extends to our own shame, shame we brought upon ourselves by doing something and shame brought by others. God's ability to save is beautiful and gives us reason to sing every day. You know, this is why, as part of our service, we put anthems on your lips. These are not just tunes. We put anthems on your lips, songs that nestle into your hearts, and they are stirred into your mind so you can sing the truths of God's goodness and salvation. We look for words that speak of his salvation in helpful and powerful ways, and then play the melodies so you have them pressed into your hearts so that you are reminded outside of this building that his mercy is more, stronger than darkness. New every morn, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And then you remember, I have been saved. I have been rescued. Let me sing of his salvation. I hope on Monday morning, on Tuesday morning, on Wednesday afternoon, that song pops into your head again and you can tell of his salvation. You can sing of his salvation, even if you just hum on the way to work. Declare his glory among the nations, it says. His marvelous works among all the peoples. When we sing this together, we confirm that this is the only fitting response to a God as good and glorious and magnificent as ours. That is why we gather weekly on Sunday and throughout the week in life groups to remind each other of the works of the Lord and respond to them. And you know the marvelous works he has done. You know it for yourself. You know it for your community, for your life group. Let people know. Remind each other. And then tell people. The word tell is the word for tell the good news in this song. This is the call to mission. His glory must be declared in your cubicle. His glory must be declared in the Congo. The poignant line from a pastor is helpful here. Missions exists because worship doesn't. We declare the glory in our locales and in our neighborhoods because the glory of the Lord is not already being declared from our neighbor's lips. Missions goes to where the song is not yet sung. That can be across the street because the song must be sung there. That could be Juneau, Alaska. That could be Slovenia. That could be all the way across the world. The need is that the glory of the Lord be declared in hopes that the song is taken up by others. So others take the tune and hear of our great God, our glorious God, and make new songs and increase the volume of vocals and magnitude of melodies so that we all stretch together in meeting with our worship what his glory deserves. And why? That's always a fine question. Why? Why does he deserve this much singing, this much worship? Verse 4 For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. For great is the Lord. What does that mean? I, I, I put it to the kids last service, but I think you guys can handle it. Is God little or big? big? Big. Hey, we're doing it. You guys are doing it. Well done. If he is big, should he be praised a little amount or a big amount? Big, big. yes. That's right, a big amount. Should we only sing with quiet voices or with loud voices? Loud voices. Yes, God, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. If we had a little God, the book of Psalms would be the smallest book in our Bible. But we don't, and it's not. We don't have a little God. Praise God, right? Right? In fact, he is to be feared above all gods. Magnitude will do that. Greatness will do that. If you come up against true greatness, there is a feeling of fear. There is awe. There is reverence. People standing next to a great canyon and being at the edge generally have a different response, an appropriately fearful response. Okay. This is serious. We're not going to play around here on the edge. There's an appropriate fear and recognition of the grandness of the situation. I've been to the zoo, and I have seen people mock monkeys at the zoo. But when everyone walks by the lions, they all get quiet. And the lion isn't even moving. It's just lounging. And people know. Truly great things elicit an appropriate fear. And God is to be feared above all gods. Any God that has tried to cajole fear out of you, that has made demands on you, that has tried to steal worship, God is above them all. God's greatness elicits that fearful all above all of them. That is why we worship him. Because he is the great God, most significant, even in the category of significant things. We are talking about the gods, any and all entities worshiped by other people, other nations, other religions. Well, how does Yahweh the Lord really compare? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the difference, the difference of the gods. Here in verse 5, the song says, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols. This is hilarious. And you don't even know yet. This song is sung in Hebrew. And the word here for God's Elohim, El is a single God. And if you add him, it's the way to make it plural. Just like you would add an S in English, right? Elohim, you've probably heard that word before. So many gods, Elohim. And here in English, we have two words translated here. It says worthless idols, but in Hebrew, it's one word. Elohim. And that word again has the eem, so it's plural. And it would normally mean worthless as a singular word, but it is plural, so it means many worthless or nothings. So Elohim Elohim, or the gods are nothings. The gods are worthless ones. A Hebrew pun dripping with contempt. That is why you should not worship the gods. But in contrast, the Lord, the Lord made the heavens. The gods are nothings, and the Lord brought skies into existence. The gods are nothings, and the Lord brought all that is out of nothing. The Lord needs nothing to aid his creation of anything, and the gods have nothing even in themselves. The comparison is overwhelming. There is no comparison. You can worship the creator of the heavens or you can worship the nothings. There are plenty of worthless objects of worship. These nothings can't create, they can't judge, they can't save, they can't sustain, and they will leave you with everything they have nothing, no hope. You can worship them or you can worship the God who made the heavens. Who do you choose? You can give your worship to those who would presume to dwell in the heavens or you can worship the one who made the heavens. No contest. Tell me more about this God. The song says splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The very categories of these things are before him. It is not simply that God is majestic and splendid but the very ideas of splendor and majesty are in his midst. His sanctuary is not just strong and beautiful, but strength and beauty reside in his presence. This song is using poetry to get at categories of ideas we hardly have words for. It's like this, we do not think about God and describe him with adjectives of splendor or majesty as though those words can lend their greatness to God to describe him. It is the other way around. The very form of splendor and majesty, strength and beauty are attendants to God in his sanctuary. God is the one that has them as servants Their association with God is what makes them great. We search for the strong, we search for the beautiful, and we catch glimpses of them here. Maybe in the commitment of a friend we see strength, or in the face of a lover we see beauty. But the unfiltered versions of these things sit in the presence of God. God is the one that created splendor and majesty, strength and beauty and in their unblemished form, they are in his presence. It is hard to overstate the glory of God. No, it is impossible to overstate the glory of God. While everything else we describe in this life is by adjectives grand, majestic, splendid, God has the paramount idea of all of them serving him in his presence. God holds the forms of which we enjoy the shadows. So if all of this is true, and it is, what do we do? The song takes up the chorus. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Ascribe to the Lord or give to the Lord glory and strength. We are called again to action. We are called again to worship. If the greatness of God is described in such terms, you have a clear response before you. We are called again to give everything back to him. And our God is not a local God. Our God is not a regional deity. No family or clan, no tribe or group, no nation or people, no culture or tradition is exempt from giving God what he deserves. All the glory is his. All the strength is his. You are all glory givers. Give it to the one who deserves it. And can you hear the group singing, rising in volume? They're trying to turn it up to 11. They have brought the ark back. They are proclaiming that God is with them. And now it is as as though they sing the chorus again, but louder. This song started at a particular time, in a particular place, being sung by a particular people, but it is breaking out of that narrowness. Even in their proclamation, they proclaim to the nations that God is bigger, The Lord must be praised, not just by us, but all the families of all the peoples. Give him glory. Give him strength. Give his name all that is due. And God's the creator. There is nothing that is not his. If the name of God is creator and he made it all out of nothing, then all that is belongs to him. His name deserves all the glory. There is no second place. There is no silver medal. There is no shared podium. Bring the glory. Do his name. Bring an offering. Come into his courts. Complacency is folly here. Standing off to the side makes no sense. Come into where he is. Sing with us and give with us and posture yourself with us. Worship the Lord because he is in the splendor of holiness. The majesty of his holiness, his goodness, his set-apartness from all that is sullied and broken and cursed, that majesty is unparalleled. Friends, I think we have a small idea of who God is, and this song is inviting us to not be okay with that small idea. Just look at it. There are so many exclamation points. What is some of the etiquette of effective writing? Use exclamation points sparingly. One a paragraph, maybe? No, we're talking about the Lord who deserves all glory. The psalmist is texting like a millennial. I don't want any of you to have a sterilized, stayed, subdued response to the Lord. I want you to have an appropriate level of exclamation points in your worship of him. This song calls for all the earth to have an appropriate response to the Lord, to tremble before him, all the earth. This same word is used for labor pains in the Old Testament. And I wonder how much attachment there is to the fear before. A woman in labor does not control her reactions when she experiences labor. There is an appropriate reaction to the great event that is happening within her. And when we come up to God, there is an intensity to the response as well. Tremble before him, all the earth. If you come close to the Lord, an appropriate response is to tremble before him. But I also hear an echo, and maybe you do as well, an echo of a future idea that comes from Paul. In Romans 8, verse 22, he says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Tremble before him all the earth, it does tremble. It knows it is bent, it knows it is broken, and it longs for redemption. It eagerly awaits the coming redemption inappropriately groans while it waits. Worship, bow down, sing, and tremble because he is that great. He is that glorious. And if you can believe it, the song is not over. If you can believe it, this anthem still crescendos. This song continues to burst out of the bonds bounds of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 10 says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the Lord is established. It shall never be moved. The world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. All you singers of the song, all you who are connected to God, who sees that God is with us, what do you do? You say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Tell the nations, Yahweh, the Lord God is king. This whole song does a climactic shift and places a call to action, proclamation and anticipation of the coming of the king. This song has already had us rehearsing, right? Rehearsing his glory, reciting his majesty, telling his splendor and proclaiming in his power and there is every reason to praise him. And now the flag has been planted, put in the ground that there is every reason to anticipate and hope For his reign, the coming of the king. This song gives words to those for that day of the revealing of God as the king of all. It is a shift to looking to a future day because it anticipates a sturdiness and a future founding of equity that is not yet apparent. You know that's not, you know that's true, right? Things are still broken here. But the song is so certain that that day comes that it places the action in the present. Here is what you say to the nations. Proclaim that the Lord is king. He reigns. The Lord is king, the Lord is sovereign, the Lord is monarch of all. And we need to have this sit in our bones, my friends. This fact changes everything. The Lord, the God of all splendor and all majesty and all glory and all power is the king. This changes everything because the Lord is not merely king of our hearts. His realm is not simply an unseen spiritual realm that we know about in our heads. His is an established kingdom. The world is established finally founded as it should be, and once it is founded as it should be, will never be moved. This broken world will again be put right and never tottered. This physical plane you all dwell on will one day be founded by the king and never moved again. All the bentness will be straight. All the faltering will be ceased. All the twists will be unfurled. All the perversion will be cleansed. Everything will be as it should be when the earth is established. And that as it ought be state will never be moved. This restoration of goodness is final. Amen? The Lord will reign. And the Lord will judge. Mm. Maybe you don't find any excitement in this fact. But let me tell you, This means there will be justice. This world will be ruled rightly because the king is the judge and in his hand is the balance and he will judge the people with equity, with fairness, with rightness, with justice. We will no longer wonder if the guilty went unpunished or the innocent were unnecessarily hurt. The longing of our hearts for wrongs to be met with appropriate consequences will no longer be left sick and wanting. He will rule rightly because he will judge rightly. Justice is in his presence, and fairness and equity will be in his court Thus we say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And friends, this matters. This truth of the Lord as king should override how you normally interact in this world. Because if the Lord is king, you don't need to fear anything but him. You don't need to interact in this world as though there is no king. You don't need to walk in this world as though the only hope is a person or a party or a system of government. The Lord is the sovereign over the whole earth and we are interacting in subsets of his governance. And if you live and move and toil and vote in this subset as though it is our only hope, then you have placed your fear where it does not belong. The Lord is king and we tremble before him. I can tell you where you hope, where you put your hope by what you fear. Do you in your mind fear and think, oh no, the liberals are going to win the next election. That's my fear. Or do you fear the MAGA crowd winning the next election? Are you stressed because they may beat us? And I don't care who the they or the us is. If that is your posture, your fear is given to a nothing. Pull your eyes up, friends, because the Lord reigns. He is the sovereign. He is the king. And the king has the glory and the majesty and the splendor and the righteousness and the justice to do the job of king well. And he is not just king of our hearts, though he is not just king of our subset of people in this room, though he is. He is the king by whom the world will be established. He is the king that will reign with justice over all people. Equity will be certain and rightness will prevail. And in that day, what will the response be? How will creation respond? This song conducts creation in its response. Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is the symphony of all creation, responding to the king, restoring all. Let the heavens be glad. The Lord made the heavens, and now they are glad because they are stirring in their chorus. Finally, all is made right. Let the earth rejoice. It has been set right. It was trembling, longing for the redemption, groaning in the birth pains, and now all is right. So the earth should rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. All creatures are called to roar in response to the reigning king. And friends, this shows the totality of the reign of the king. Our hope, our assurance is not just a salvation and restoration for us as individuals or as humans, but our hope is the coming restoration of all creation. Our future as those connected to God is not a disembodied existence with saved souls. Ours is a restoration of our person in new resurrected bodies participating in a restored creation no longer twisted by the fall. All will be made right. That is the glorious future we anticipate in the reign of the Lord. That is awesome, isn't it? That is why the seas roar. They roar, yes, we have been restored. That's what the mighty depths say. That is why the fields exult and everything in it. Can you see the deer jumping and the cattle lifting up their voices and the hares running around in excitement and the birds adding their harmonies? The good news of the king will be met with the chorus of all creation, Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. The forests are alive with the songs of joy. I can't help but think of the forest in the work of Tolkien. In the Lord of the Rings, Fangorn Forest is a sleepy, tired, old forest roused to defend against destruction. How much more alive will the trees be when the redemption of creation is complete? The trees have groaned for restoration for longer lifetimes than any other living thing. There are trees today that have been around since David called for this song to be sung. And they have been longing for the restoration. And when it comes, then the joy will be sung when all is made new. They've witnessed the groaning for that long Oh, the songs they will sing. When they see the Lord, songs of joy will rise up. When they see that he comes to judge the earth because he is a good judge, a just judge. For too long, the earth has not been judged rightly. All creation has longed for it to be set right. And when the king comes, when the judge comes, the world will be judged in righteousness. And we can all say, good, good. And the peoples will be judged in faithfulness. Good. We want this day. We want this reign. We want this king to show up and start now. And your question should be, when does it start? When can we sing these songs? And friends, this book tells us there is confirmation of a king coming. In fact, the trees that are still alive have witnessed it. The beginning of the songs, when Jesus arrived into the city of Jerusalem, the same city that the ark was brought to, and the people rejoiced at the coming king. In Luke, the story is described. It says, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, that's where those trees still are, God came to the city. The king arrived in Jerusalem. And the song rose up just as it did in Psalm 96. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And Jesus' answer when told to shut up his disciples is an echo to Psalm 96. If the people are silent, the very stones would cry out and pick up the song. Creation, even the rocks, have been waiting and in great anticipation for this king to show up. And if no one was there to tell the good news, they would pick up the song. Jesus, the king, had arrived, my friends. The kingship of the Lord was made known that day. And that king walked into Jerusalem. And that king walked to the place where God makes himself known. And that king walked himself to the cross to prove that he is the king who judges rightly. Wrongs will be punished. Your wrongs were punished. And righteousness will be established. And the king was buried. And the king was raised again, confirming him as the king of the whole earth. Friends, the reign of Jesus has already started. But his reign is not yet fully realized. So we live in the tension of this song we can at the same, same time say among the nations, the Lord reigns and groan along with creation, longing for the redemption of all things because the world is not yet established. But the day is coming. The king is known. His rule is certain. His justice and righteousness unwavering. And while we wait alongside creation for the world to be judged in righteousness and faithfulness, we worship with all of our lives, giving all of our affection and glory and strength to the King, and we raise our voice to tell and sing of His great works and proclaim the glory of the coming just King. Let's pray. Lord, come quickly. Set right the earth and reign in justice and righteousness. May we all be heralds of the coming King. Give us an exuberance fueled by a kingdom anticipating an imagination. May we be known for our worship, our posture, and our singing of the King. May our songs be sung with exclamation points even now because we know you are, you are King, are coming. Amen. Amen.